Beloved, I trust that many of you probably saw in the news this week that there was kind of an epic decision being made in the Southern Baptist Convention. I remember uh, a few decades ago, I I was alive at the time, but I wasn't uh, interested in things of this nature at that time. I heard about it after the fact, but there was a similar kind of epic shift where a decision was being made regarding the veracity of the Word of God in, in that time some decades ago, the right side won and kind of thwarted a turn towards liberalism and the denial of the sufficiency and authority of the Word of God. Sad to say, that's not what took place this week. Uh, There was an article a few days ago on June 15th with this headline. It said this, A Fight for the Soul of the Southern Baptist Convention. And then in the article, and I don't know if the woman that wrote the article professes to be a believer or not, but it's very clear, at least by the little portions of the article that I read, she doesn't have a right understanding of the Word of God and what was at stake. And this is what she said in part. More than 16,000 Southern Baptists are in Nashville, Tennessee, for the denomination's national convention, the most high-profile gathering in years. The already, and by the way, this next sentence is where she kind of betrays her perspective. She says, the already conservative denomination is battling an ultra-conservative faction. And I think you should understand that that is not a complimentary phrase, that's a pejorative description in her mind battling an ultra-conservative faction within itself that says Southern Baptists are drifting too far left. What happens next has the potential to further splinter an already divided evangelical America, end quote. Now, it's interesting what she describes, the group of people that she describes as being ultra-conservative in a pejorative fashion are simply the men and women that believe God and believe the Bible. There were different issues that were at stake that were kind of fomenting this situation. One of them has to do with God's clear guidelines around the leadership of the church, namely in the context of women pastors. In other words, she was calling people ultra-conservative in a bad fashion, people who believe God when God said, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. It was interesting as I thought about this, I was reminded to a few months ago in our Thursday morning men's Bible study when Glenn Michaels had brought up the subject of churches that are compromising on leadership within the church and compromising with women pastors and elders. And Scott Mom, who was leading the study, rightly said that it is a very short, slippery slope between compromising on women pastors and God's qualifications for leadership and compromise on perversion with the whole LBGTQ work. I commented that whether it's the compromise of leadership as God would define it or compromise on perversion, those are merely oozing sores on the surface. The underlying cancerous disease that produces them is defiance of God, defiance of the word of God. You see, beloved, God is not swayed by the opinion of the masses. We praise God and thank God and worship him him in part for that. He set the pattern at the beginning, which is the pattern of marriage, of one man, one woman for life, a monogamous relationship united physically, socially, mentally, and spiritually with the husband as the head of the union. Marriage 
is a union of two lives fused into one, an unbroken lifelong joining together, an indissoluble relationship and union where there are no spares. In the beginning, there were no spares, no options, no alternatives, no escape clauses. This was God's divine intention from the beginning. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Our verse this morning is verse 21. As we are in this sick chapter book, in the second half of the second half, what the Apostle Paul is doing here from verse 21 through chapter 6, verse 10, he is focusing on relationships. Wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. And what we're going to do is we're going to slow down a little bit. Part of this is self-serving. My favorite verse in the Bible that is horizontally oriented is Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. And those of you that are part of the church, I will say this. It's not my favorite verse just because I'm preaching through Ephesians or preaching through this passage. And even in the weight of the verse 21 we're going to slow down there just a little bit. The title of today's sermon is A Spirit-Filled Message. A Spirit-Filled Message. And this sermon is kind of an introduction of where we'll be going and spending the coming weeks in verses 21 through 33 with wives and husbands, and then verses 1 through 4 in chapter 6 with children and parents. Beloved, follow along as I read the Word of God beginning in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. This is the word of God, beloved, that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, let me pause here for a second and, and say something. I've shared this with a couple people on the side, but I've never said this up front. Ephesians is fascinating. I've never studied a book or preached through a book where there are so many different verses where there's a little subtle nuance in one direction or the other with a translation or with an interpretation. And by the way, I thought of this after last time. That, that is, this is a 
built-in illustration. If you're here through Ephesians, remember there's multiple words where Paul uses that little Greek word soon, that we are buried with Christ, we're raised together with Christ, we're seated with Christ, you know, with, 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 together with throughout Ephesians, from which that little Greek word soon, from which we get the English word sink. Well, my mic is out of sync with that's over here, so... I, I've never gone through a book where there are so many little differences and nuances that suddenly could go in one direction or the other. Back in chapter 1, there's a few times where it says in him, and is, does it go with what took place before? Does it lead into the next one? And there's some interpretations as well. And what's fascinating is through the different commentators and the pastors, there's almost a 50-50 split. Now, one of these areas is here in verse 21. When you study different commentators or if you look at different sermons of how people outline Ephesians, does verse 21 go with what preceded before or is it the beginning of what takes place afterwards? Now, grammatically, it is without question pointing to what took place before. Topically or thematically, it is looking forward to what come, is coming in the future. Grammatically, it looks backward. Thematically, it looks forward, which is actually the twofold outline we have for us here this morning. We're going to rest on verse 21. We're going to look at it and study it, applying it backwards to the body of Christ, and then applying it looking forward to the family. Not the spiritual family, which we are, but the family of husband and wife, and even children as well. And beloved, the intent is as with the rest of scripture and as with the rest of ephesians that god would assure us and god would mature us this is to equip us to better maintain purity in a world that is putrefying it's to remind us that marriage is not to be touched quickly treated commonly or handled casually but rather marriage is to be loved dearly and defended ferociously let's begin by looking at verse 21 backwards to the body of Christ. And simply put, what Paul is saying here is we are to continually have a heart attitude and an outward demonstration of mutual submission to one another. A self-denying, others-centered mutual submission within the body of Christ. We know that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. There is the command from God given back in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Be being filled continually with the Holy Spirit individually. But we also understand this is expressed corporately. That is the command, be being filled with the Spirit. And then in verses 19 and 20, we see characteristics of what that looks like. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody together in our hearts. And thanking God continuously for everything. Those are four characteristics of one who is being filled with the Holy Spirit. Those are four participles, the little ing words. Well, here in verse 21, there is the fifth participle. It says in the New American Standard, and be subject to one another. Literally, it is being in submission to one another, being subject to one another. So it is the fifth participle, the fifth, fifth characteristic of what a Christian is, of who we are. And this is part of the thread that the Apostle Paul has been bringing to us throughout the whole letter. Be what you already are. And that is what he is bringing out here. Now, 
when we think of these characteristics, when we think of these participles, they are grammatically, that is what they are. But at the same time, we understand that each of them carries a sense of command. So what God is telling us is what is characteristic of us is we speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And at the same time, it carries a sense of a command to excel yet more as we do, as we exhibit these different characteristics. This is what we do, and this is what we must do. Now, the characteristic of submission, by the way, is carried over into the charge given to the wife. In verse 22, here in Ephesians 5, as the New American Standard reads it, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, in my version of this, the words be subject are in italics, and that's a little indication that the be subject is not in the original language. It's something that the, translate, the translators added. And the point there is that this characteristic pattern of being subject to one another is carried forward in the sense of a command to the wives in verse 22. And the New American Standard translators translate it the way they do. The English Standard Version translated it a little more literally as submitting to one another. But they kind of went in a different direction. The ESV continues on with the reverence of Christ, whereas the New American Standard, you'll see, says with the fear of Christ, which is a better rendering, more literal of the word phobos, but that's a side point. Now, having said all this, beloved, as we think about this characteristic, as we think about this sense of command to being in submission to one another, this is probably one of the easier verses in the Bible to understand. You don't need a PhD in Greek. You don't need deep doctrines. You don't need to wade through huge volumes of systematic theologies to understand what God is communicating here. It is a verse that is very easy to understand, but it is a verse that is very difficult to obey. It's easy to say. It's hard to do. Now, the word translated as Submitting to one another. Be subject is the word hupotasso. Tasso is the word meaning to place or to arrange. Hupo is under. So it's literally saying place yourself under. Arrange yourself under an authority. It was a word very often used in military language to talk about soldiers or ranks in the army that would arrange themselves and place themselves under an authority. And this principle of submission is very important to the Apostle Paul. He uses this word 23 times in his 13 letters. He already used this word earlier here in this letter, back in chapter 1, verse 22, in describing God the Father placing all of creation under the authority of God the Son. Ephesians 1, 22, he put all things in subjection, put in subjection all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church at the human level the apostle paul exhorted the church in rome in romans 13 verse 1 let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities or in the companion letter to the church in Colossae in colossians 3 18 paul says wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord. That would be a companion verse to verse 22, which we will come to next week. Now, beloved, by way 
of illustration, when a man joins the army, he doesn't lose his identity, but he does lose a measure of his autonomy. When a woman joins an orchestra, she doesn't lose her identity, but she does lose a measure of her autonomy. She's not a, it's not a solo act. Beloved, in the same way, a Christian, you are an individual, but we cannot be individualistic. We all must have an opinion. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good, but we must not be opinionated. And beloved, in Christ, being in continual submission to one another means that we say yes to self-sacrifice and no to self-indulgence. Now, Having said this, we must recognize that this kind of mutual submission does not mean that there are no longer divinely ordained orders and hierarchies. Uh, the wise, again, will be told in verses 22 to 24 to submit or subject themselves to the husband. The children will be told to obey their parents in chapter 6, verse 1. And then the slaves will be told to be obedient to their masters in chapter 6, verse 5. So there still are ordained orders and hierarchies, but even for husbands and parents and masters, for a Christian, there is a heart attitude of submitting and of sacrificing self for the people. Jesus Christ did not come to be served, but what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, if you remember the great passage in describing the wonderful, wonderful mystery of the incarnation of Christ who surrendered, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, and he surrendered himself of all the divine, independent use of his divine attributes. That great statement on the theology of the incarnation of God in human form was stated as an illustration for an exhortation of the church in Philippi. In Philippians 2, 3, and 4, Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, watch this, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Beloved, this kind of submission of self, voluntary submission of self, this kind of humility means freedom from yourself. It means a freedom from being focused and dedicated to self only. It's part of the newness of life that we enjoy in Christ. And when we consider the kind of unity, the wonderful mystical unity that we have in Christ that Paul brought out in chapter 4 verses 1 through 16 and the outward demonstration of that kind of unity or the purity that he then picks up in chapter 4 verse 17 all the way up through here we understand that part of the bedrock of that kind of unity and purity is a willingness to submit self a willingness to serve any to learn from any to be corrected by any regardless of age gender class or any other division that man may erect between fellow man. Same kind of thinking that the Apostle Paul gave to the disobedient church in Galatia. In Galatians 5, verse 13, Paul told the believers that were in this disobedient church, you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve 
one another. Beloved, humility, submission of self means a willingness to be least among many. It means a willingness to wash the feet of others. And we recognize that it is the gospel that humbles any man or any woman. And at the center of the gospel is this heart commitment of the people to submit to one another. And by the way, when you understand the milieu in which the Ephesian believers found themselves, into which the Apostle Paul was writing, understand this, that humility, this submission of self, was not something that was valued by the culture at that time. It wouldn't pass the high-tech censorship of the high-tech companies. It was frowned upon. It was scowled upon. So for the Apostle Paul to write to the Ephesian believers to submit themselves to one another in this fashion was extremely countercultural. And understand this, that by the grace and mercy of God, by the transformation power, the transforming power of God, this kind of submission of self, this kind of humility is not oppressive. It is liberating. It is not oppressing, it is liberating, it is emancipating. Well, that's the characteristic. Uh, but Paul now gives a qualifier. He finishes verse 21, in the fear of Christ. Now, what the Apostle Paul is doing here is it's really quite unique. He is unequivocally saying Christ is God. Because anyone that has any understanding of the Word of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well understands that we were told repeatedly in both the Old and the New to fear God. Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So Paul is saying Christ is God. And Martin Lloyd-Jones had great statement by way of application of what this means as we qualify this characteristic. This is what the doctor said, quote, the Christian doesn't merely do things because they're good and right and because it's wrong to do other things. The differentiation mark of the Christian is he does everything as unto the Lord in the fear of Christ because Christ is his Lord or Christ is her Lord. Beloved, I came across a great story and a great quote that I think wonderfully captures this element of mutual submission of self. In the biography of the manager of the Liverpool football club, soccer club, Bob Paisley, he was a quiet man. Uh, it says of him, Bob Paisley was the quiet man in the flat cap who swept all domestic and European opposition aside and produced arguably the greatest club team that Britain has ever known. The title of the book was called Quiet Genius because he was such a quiet, kind of self-deprecating man. And it was interesting because he took over the helm of the management of the Liverpool Football Club from a man that was very much the opposite. Bill Shankly was an extremely outgoing, very aggressive man. And it was interesting when Bob Paisley came into the office Bill Shankly had left a piece of paper and le had left a note for him with just one sentence. And this is what Bill Shankly said to Bob Paisley in this one sentence. Bill Shankly says Bob Paisley is the best manager in the game. Uh, what a wonderful way of encouragement from a man that is passing the mantle to another man. But what Bob Paisley did is he took that note, 
and he added two commas to the sentence and then sent it back by way of reply. And this is what he wrote with those two commas. It said, Bill Shankly, comma, says Bob Paisley, comma, is the best manager in the game. He turned it around. And beloved, that's a great illustration of the kind of mutual self-submission. It's a great illustration of what we know to be true, which is namely, God humbles the proud and God lifts up the humble. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Beloved, we understand that the unbeliever naturally puts self first, others second, and God last. The believer, supernaturally, by virtue of the new birth, supernaturally puts God first, others second, and then comes in last. That's taking this verse 21 and applying it backwards to the body. Now let's take this verse and apply it forward to the family. Again, not the family of God. This is the family of God, but the family of husband and wife and children. Wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. It's interesting, this section from verse 21 or from verse 22 through 33 on wives and husbands is much longer than the other two sections. Why is that? And I think the answer is this, is that marriage, this relationship is first and it is foundational. Marriage is the first and foundational institution of all other institutions. All other human institutions are derived from and flow from this first one. It's the most vital of all relationships. Marriage is. John Stott, in his commentary, had this great question, this challenging question, what is the point of peace in the church if there's not peace in the home? And let me pause here for a second. I want to give a word of encouragement to singles. I could have put this anywhere. I chose to put it right here. You may be here this morning and you may be single. You may be never married. You may be widowed. You may even be divorced. Beloved brother or sister, don't in any way, shape, or form think that somehow this message, this sermon, this text, this passage from verse 22 to 33 does not apply to you. It absolutely does. This is the word of God for the child of God. Also understand this, that when it comes to married and singleness, intrinsic one, neither is intrinsically superior, spiritually speaking, to the other. Both married and single are acceptable before the Lord. Both are good in Christ. Both have their advantages. That's why, for example, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 7, where he certainly talked a lot about, had a lot of words for married people, he also had very strong, encouraging words for single people. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 7 and 8, he said, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. The Apostle Paul was single. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. So you are not a second-class citizen if you're not married. Well, back on task. Again, marriage is first and it is foundational. First, marriage is first. Beloved, Marriage is not some bourgeois organism that's just floating through the 21st century. It is ordained by God. It is designed by God 
watch this, listen, it is designed for God. Marriage is designed for your joy if you're married. Ultimately, it is designed for God and his glory. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. You remember that God, who is the creator of all, and the king of all, God looked at all, and after he had created all, except the woman, he said, this is not good. He saw something that was not good. And in chapter 2, verse 18, we pick it up there, and we read this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And he slept, and then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now, beloved, depending on your Bible, if you look at verse 23, you might see that it's centered in a certain way. This is the first record in the Bible of poetic language. And I'm going to read it with a little more literal translation so you'll get the the weight of the joy and the excitement and the fervor that comes from the heart of Adam. And the man said, this one is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because this one was taken out of man. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Beloved, in a sense, when God created all things, God is king of all things, looked and said something is not good. He says, in a sense, I will correct this aloneness problem and I will custom build, I will tailor made the perfect companion. Beloved, God ordains the marriage built on the love of husband and wife as the first and most basic human structure of authority and instruction. Before there were, were any governments or schools or churches or other social structures, God established marriage. And every other social organization flows and it's derived from this first foundational one, namely marriage. This union of two lives fused into one. This unbroken lifelong joining together. This indissoluble unification intellectually emotionally physically spiritually even socially this is god's divine ordeal as part me, divine ideal excuse me as part of creation <laughs> i guess sin at times makes it an ordeal <laughs> but it's god's divine ideal as seen in creation snip snip <laughs> And beloved friend, God says, I design marriages and you better not break them apart. That's why Christ said in Mark chapter 10, verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So marriage is first and marriage is 
foundational. And understand, in our marriage vow, we give up our autonomous ownership of self, and we commit to a lifetime of mutual love and submission. Back in verse 21, and being subject to one another. This is looking forward to the family. This is realizing that marriage is a beautiful, the most wonderful gift from God, a total commitment, total concentration, consecration, total setting apart. And th- as I mentioned before, there are no escape options, no spares, no alternatives. This was the divine intention from the beginning. And just because later on spares came along, that in no way undermines God's original intent, doesn't change his original intention. Even when Christ in Mark chapter 10 or Matthew 5 and 19 gave a reason for divorce in the case of unrepentant serial adultery or physical desertion, Christ makes it very clear that that is not part of God's original intent. And for us, in this third decade of the 21st century, in this third decade of the third millennium, we see that the world has substituted passive watching and virtual living for active communication and vibrant relationship. The world substitute perversion for purity. Carl Truman, who is a great writer, wrote these words in 2013, and how much worse off are things now some eight years later. This is what Truman wrote in 2013. The spoiled infants really have taken over the universe of moral discourse. When a man who deserts his wife for another man is more likely to be hailed as a cultural hero because of his courageous honesty rather than decried as a sleazy cretin for his outward capitulation to his perversion. Beloved, the primrose path to self-fulfillment, to self-indulgence, to self-esteem, to self-love is strewn with the bones of so many that have gone before. Each year in the United States, there are well over a million divorces. And beneath the rubble of these numbing statistics lies the crushed lies of men, women, and children. And in the twisted lies of the enemy, Failure becomes success, disintegration becomes growth, and disaster becomes triumph. We can think of it this way. A fire in the fireplace is a wonderful thing to the home. It brings warmth, peace, and calm. In the same way, intimacy in a marriage is pure, holy, undefiled, without pollution. It brings warmth, peace, and calm. But a fire outside the fireplace, a fire outside the confines in which it is intended, brings destruction. It's a raging blaze that destroys the home. In the same way, unmarried intimacy, fornication, adultery, pornography, leaves a trail of burned out men and women, broken hearts, unwanted pregnancies, and nasty diseases. And singles listen. It leaves a damaged capacity to fully enjoy the permanent blessing of God's good gift of marriage and intimacy within marriage. We can think of the spiritual war that we engage, in which we war. And our ammunition is doctrinal. A primary battlefield is relationships. 
but the headquarters, the headquarters we must defend to the death is marriage. Walter Meyer, who was an early 20th century Lutheran, Lutheran radio commentator, said these very choice words. Because marriage comes from God above and not from man or beast below, it involves moral, not merely physical problems. A sin against the commandment of purity is a sin against God, not simply the outraging of convention, not simply the thoughtlessness of youth, the evidence of bad taste. The Savior tells us that when God's children are joined in wedlock, they are united by God. And beneath the evident strength and courage and love that this divine direction promises, there is a penetrating, ominous warning. Those who tamper with God's institution have lighted the fuse to the explosive retributive justice. Marriage is so holy that all of all social sins, its violation invokes the most appalling consequences. Sodom and Gomorrah were burned out of existence because of the vile disregard of the holiness of marriage. David's rule over Israel was blackened by his marital sin and by the royal lust that forgot God and dedicated itself to raging passion. And he finishes with these words. Throughout history, red blotches of warning mark the final record of devastated nations that forgot the divine origin of marriage and its holiness. By way of application, we can remember Stott's quote that I said before, what good, or what's the point of peace in the church if there's not peace in the home? If you claim concern for your children, fathers, mothers, if you can claim concern for your job, if you claim concern for your church, if you claim concern for your country while your marriage is in shambles, physician, heal thyself. Well, back at the end of verse 21 again, we get the qualifier at the end, in the fear of Christ. This reminds us, even as we look forward, that Paul is addressing the faithful in Christ. You're not married people who happen to be Christians. You're Christians who are blessed to be married. In Christ, we have a new tenderness, a new willingness to pursue what God has intended from the beginning, the joy of an unshakable commitment and an unbreakable promise. Fathers, on this Father's Day, the priority of your wife the most sacred gift from God to you at the human level, the most important human relationship. Understand this, fathers, the greatest gift you can give your children is a God-centered, God-exalting marriage and wife-loving marriage. Your wife is exceedingly precious because she is exceedingly rare. Again, remember the poetic eruption from the heart and pen of Adam. This one, this one, this one. Now, some people say, you know, again, even as we said before, it's an easy verse to understand. It's a very hard one to obey. And people say, you know, God made me this way. I, I, I was born this way. I, or they may say, you may say, you know, I, I just can't do this. Do you remember the man with the withered hand and the withered arm that came across Christ and his whole arm was withered and tucked into his 
his body. He couldn't do anything with it. And do you remember what Christ commanded him to do? He said, stretch out your hand. That man could not do that. In his human strength, in his power, with his withered arm, he could not stretch out his hand, his arm. But God, God put life in that arm where there was no life before so that he could stretch it out. Beloved, you'll never know what you can do until you step out in faith. When you step out in faith, then you can continue stepping on, continue walking on in obedience, joyfully. And the same God who can bring life out of death, the same God who can bring light out of darkness, can he not also bring love out of even hate? Yes, he can. Beloved, I'm going to conclude with a letter from a Civil War soldier named Sullivan Bayou. Sullivan Bayou was a lawyer and a politician from Rhode Island. He was an officer in the Union Army during the Civil War, and he is remembered for a letter that he wrote to his wife, Sarah, in the year of our Lord, 1861. This is what Sullivan Bayou wrote to his wife, Sarah. My very dear Sarah, the indications are very strong. We shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow. Lest I won't be able to write you again, I feel impelled to write lines that may fall under your eye when I am no more. Our movement may be one of the severe conflict and death to me, may be one of severe conflict and death to me. Not my will, but thine will be done, O God. If it is necessary that I should fall on the battlefield for my country, I'm ready. I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which I am engaged, and my courage does not halt or falter. I know how strongly American civilization now leans upon this triumph and how great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and suffering of the revolution. And I am willing, perfectly willing, to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this and to pay that debt. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me to you with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence could break. And yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me irresistibly on with all these chains to the battlefield. The memories of the blissful moments I've spent with you, Sarah, come creeping over me, and I feel most gratified to God and to you that I've enjoyed them so long. It is very hard for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes of future years. When, God willing, we might have lived and loved together and seen our sons grow up to honor, <clears throat> seen our sons grow up to <clears throat> honorable manhood around us. I have, I know, but few and small <clears throat> claims upon divine providence. But something whispers to me. Perhaps it is a wafted prayer <clears throat> of my. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> I have, I know, but few and small claims upon divine providence, but something whispers to me. Perhaps it is the wafted prayer of my little Edgar that I shall return to my loved ones unharmed. If I do not, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I love you. And when my last <clears throat> breath escapes me on the battlefield, it, it will whisper your name. How gladly 
I would wash out with my tears every little spot upon your happiness, every struggle with all the misfortune of this world to shield you and our children from harm. But I cannot. I must watch you from the spirit land and hover near you while you buffet the storms with your precious little fate, excuse me, little freight, and wait with sad patience until we meet to part no more. He closes out, Sarah, do not mourn me dead. Think I am gone and wait for me, for we shall meet again. O Sarah, I wait for you there. Come to me and lead there my children, Sullivan. Two weeks after he wrote this letter, he passed away in the first battle of Bull Run. Beloved, what manner of letter husband, what manner of letter wife, what manner of letter would you write to your wife, to your husband, should there be certain separation days away? What would you say? How would you express your love? What regrets would you have? What would you desperately want and wish that you could change? What words would you have to give your most precious gift from the Lord on earth to pass on to your children? What charge, what regrets, what apologies? Beloved, you have time now to write that letter with your life. You have time to write this letter with your love, with your attention, with your devotion, with your passion, with your sacrifice. You have time now to change those words that might drip with regret from your final letter, with sorrow, with a desperate wish to do over. You can live right now. Beloved, keep pursuing, keep loving, keep courting, keep dating. Men, keep opening doors, keep doing special things. Keep, again, loving for the glory of God, for your eternal joy, and for your temporal joy right now. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your standard of perfect holiness. We praise you, God, our Father, that you do judge sin. And we are eternally grateful and rejoice now that you provided a way of escape. We thank you for sending your Son, for giving the gift of his life. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sinless, perfect life, for your once-for-all sacrifice at the cross for your victory over the grave we praise you and thank you for building your church for building this church we thank you for our salvation we thank you for all the godly single men and women in this church that are such a blessing to me personally to us as a body we thank you for the marriages in this church bless the husbands bless the wise. May we grow in the grace and knowledge of you as our Lord and Savior. Again, for your glory, first and foremost, for our eternal joy, and for the joy we experience right now. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, by your power, according to the purpose of the Father, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.